1: Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're
0: investing $1 billion into Seabus property.
1: Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating
0: healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus. For all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS.
1: I had to go about it. This is the final word story time, the version of our cricket podcast where we are directed by our listeners through the rambling, twisting, turning back lanes, pathways, byways of the History of Cricket. My name's Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is also with me. If you uh, listened to the to the show, if you pressed the play button and, and you didn't skip forward, you would have heard the the piano tunes and, and some sort of reaffirming message from Seabus Superannuation. For the last time, for the last time, a, a little tear rolls down our little cheeks as we take out our handkerchiefs and wave goodbye to the departing steamer Seabus. Uh, has been with us for a couple of years now. Two years going all the way back to the 2019 World Cup when the Hall of Fame first started and CBUS were involved there. They've helped create a lot of really stupid jokes um, with various of our listeners and we've had a lot of fun working with them for the last couple of years and uh, as these things do, they come to their natural ends but I think that we feel... I, I, I would never have thought of loving a superannuation company before but maybe I do now. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Yeah, it's
0: two years almost to the day because that World Cup started, I believe, on the 30th of May, uh, 2019. So we're one day shy of um, two years working with CBUS on the podcast. And as you say, it's been brilliant. I mean, really, when you consider that we love our patrons and, and that's such a big part of all of this and we'll come to that through the course of the show, but Seabus later foundation under a lot of that early work, especially uh, through 2019 when we were finding our feet, we were obviously making the show every day, but we had no idea whether it was going to work. Mm. We had no idea that we would experience the surge that we did. We had a hunch... And CBUS backed that hunch much in the same way they backed us in 2018. In the UAE, in that project, they they backed in our belief and they helped turn that into a reality in 2018 and again through the last two years. So... To Peter Little especially, who's been instrumental in supporting the programs we've been doing, who runs the commercial marketing operation there at CBUS, a personal thanks to him and his team. It is sad, uh, but also, as you say, it's a parting of ways. It's, it's a natural, organic end. It's, it's reached its natural jumping-off point as far as they're concerned and we're concerned. And it's really nice to be able to part ways in such good spirits because it's rarely the case that <laughs> you get a chance to say thank you like this on the show, But
1: <laughs> but yeah, I'm really glad that we're able to do that today. Thanks to Peter, thanks to Razia and Chris and all the team there and all of the listeners who were really confused, especially the ones in the UK who were like, is it a bus that goes into the sea? And we're like, <laughs> no, it's the letter C from the alphabet followed by the letters B-U-S um, because it's about construction and building and a uh, union and super, and I reckon if you put those four words together, that's probably what the acronym Cbus stands for, <laughs> more or less. Yeah.
0: Well, you think about yeah, you think about the moments that Cbus have been there with us. Sorry, just to elaborate on this point one last time, but they were with us when we were you know on the balcony at Lords after the World Cup final. They were with us after the Joffre Archer, Steve Smith day. They were with us when um, Richard Punt uh, lit the. Gabber on fire in the final session of that test this year. So many other points along the way, men's cricket, women's cricket, domestic cricket, every story that we've been able to tell on this show across the weekly edition, the weekend show, they've been there with us. There's barely been a time when they've not been a feature of our our program. So yeah, again, to everybody at CBUS for helping us grow into what we've grown into, it's just been an absolute joy to work with you. And uh, sort out your super
1: if you haven't. Worth doing. Sort it out,
0: cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. You get to see our faces in caricature form. And I'll, I'll, I've said it before and I really mean it. Having worked in the super industry briefly a number of years ago, it, it makes a lot of sense to get your superannuation sorted out. Trust me, because when you do, uh, it really does sort of lay a foundation under what will be the income you need one day when you retire. So cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. Everything we say is caveated as always by past performance not being a reliable indicator of future performance. Jeff, can you actually say that one more time for us? You've got got the voice for it. You've done it so
1: many times. To find out if CBUS Super is right for you, download a PDS from (laughs) CBUSSuper.com.au and remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.
0: beautifully done beautifully done it's a beautiful day here in london too jeff i should say it's the first time i've taken winnie to nursery mm-hmm. when i haven't been wearing a, a jumper and a jacket it's mm-hmm. like 23 degrees or something maybe not even it might be like 17 but it feels like 23 the old mm-hmm. tony greg players comfort measure is higher <laughs> because we've had so much cold weather and so much rain what's and that's the weather visually- wall say What's the weather wall say? The weather wall says that Yorkshire are like fifty for seven at lunch on day one at Old Trafford. That's where I'm going first thing tomorrow to do that game for Sky. And mm. who knows, it might be over in two days the way that it's going. Lancashire have caught fire themselves uh, with their fast bowlers early mm. on uh, in the Roses game. But no, it, it's a, it's lovely that it feels like belatedly summer has arrived uh, to the UK.
1: It's um it it's it's Lucksmith's day, isn't it? That was, that was it the is band, the T-shirt weather. It band. is.
0: It certainly is. Mm. Uh, it, it is t-shirt weather. We might. Um, uh, we might. I, I'm going to play that to Winnie when she gets home today. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take her jumper off. She's probably wearing a jumper. Yep. In fact, I know she is. I dressed her this morning. I'm going to put her into a t-shirt. Go in the garden and sing t-shirt weather. At mm-hmm. the moment, uh, I know we did a long Winnie update on the weekly show, but something else that I've neglected to mention is that there are two stray cats, or maybe they're not strays, but two kind of cats that roam Mm -hmm. our backyard, two black cats, and Winnie has become somewhat obsessed with them. And she presses her face up against the window, and this says, Mia, 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 (laughs) which of course she's trying to say meow. So now she gets me to take her outside, to so hold her up and just starts, like, having a fit of joy um, mm-hmm. each time. So we'll do that this afternoon and we'll sing T-Shirt Weather together.
1: All right. Well, um, yeah, and you can play it for Rachel. Since I'm, I know from your YouTube search history that you like sharing Australian culture with Rachel, you can, <laughs> you can play that song for her as well. I'm sure she'll I will. be more receptive to that than various Rex Hunt clips. Um, right, let's get into the thing that we do. Let's do story time. And let's tell some stories via the medium of a game. It is called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. The game we play with the lovely people on our patron page who make this show happen and support the other show, the weekly midweek show that we do, uh, the two shows a week by sending us amounts of currency of their choice but not normal, clean, round numbers uh, that you might use in, a, in an establishment to purchase an item. But Specific, weird numbers, like the ones you find in supermarkets, I suppose, where, you know, things cost $2.38 instead of $2. Uh, in this case, the number relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what that connection is. We have a double header. first of all. So the same number from two different people, probably for different reasons. It comes in from Chim Gadar and Peter Roberts. Peter with a D if you need to spell that in your mind like I sometimes do. The number is $5.43. There is a clue from Chim Gadar and that clue is one word, all caps, with an exclamation mark, wheels, <laughs> wheels. Not the character from Degrassi Junior High, I'm going to tip, <laughs> but wheels.
0: Yeah, wheels. Well, look. Five, four, three, in wheels. I'm thinking bowling figures, mm-hmm. and and that didn't take long to remember that Steve Harmison took five for forty three on the first day of the 2005 Ashes series at Lords, and he certainly had his wheels within that day. That was a rapid spell. But there are so many great options here. Like, Ian Bishop is the bowler that a lot of players from the early 90s says was the quickest of the lot Mm. in terms of who they faced. He took five for 43 against Pakistan at Port of Spain in 1993. Wadzie Macram picked up five for 43 twice. Kirtley Ambrose picked up five for 43 in his second Perth Rampage five years on from the first, or four years on from the first, rather, in 1997. But... -hmm. All roads on this one, Jeff, led me back to the Raw Pindi Express and that was the link to the wheels, I think, and hope. Sharb Akhtar for a 5 for 43 that he took against South Africa in Durban in 1998. Mm. So there was lots to choose from, but I reckon we haven't talked about Shaab enough.
1: On Story We haven't talked about him much at all, really. But, if yeah. I'm just casting my mind back, I don't think he's come up on the show much, um, which is a bit funny uh, given... But if you're talking wheels, he was the wheeliest of the lot. You know, he was he was the wheel deal. He's the guy who... I mean, <laughs> every time you go to Old Trafford, as you mentioned, there's that that sort of plaque on the wall of, of him bowling the fastest delivery ever recorded at 160.1 kilometres an hour or whatever it was, um, cracking the 100-mile-an-hour yep. mark, which is commemorated up there. So, yeah, you can't get more wheels than Akhtar.
0: Yeah, and, and he's the quickest bowler of all time. Well, certainly, I mean, it's hard to compare him to Thompson I suppose and some might say Tyson but I think that when you look back at the footage that Sharp had Frank Tyson covered but the imprint he left I think in that era when it was Lee and Sharp Akhtar in an arms race of sorts wasn't it really in trying to hit 100 mile an hour first and Mm. Sharp did achieve that. Uh, and I suppose Mitchell Stark has as well, uh, but that was a very strange day when there mm. was a full toss and we were both there for that and it didn't quite feel right. But when Schaub did it, it mattered.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, the Stark one was just padded back down to mid-off, I think, by Ross Taylor mm. and didn't didn't seem too dramatic at all. So who knows exactly how the, the different radars measure those things. But it is quite amusing to think of bowling as being an arms race since they do it with their arms. <laughs> And they're trying uh, to be the fastest with their arms. So it is literally an arms race.
0: Yeah. And some of these performances from Shawb were before the time when radars were were at every ground or at least on mm-hmm. every broadcast. So at the very end of the 90s, I remember in the 98, 99 Ashes series, for example, you would occasionally see the radar come up on the scoreboard. And I suppose that was reflected on the Channel 9 coverage. And that's when you would find out that Steve bowled quicker than Glenn McGrath for instance, and that was all very funny. But Shah Akhtar in 1998, I mentioned this spell, mm. it was the first time he took five wickets in Test cricket and I would be surprised if some of these deliveries weren't up around 100 mile an hour as well, so 160 mm. kilometres in new money. By the way, I like measuring bowling and fast bowling in miles, but I feel like it's this – I think Mike Selvey made the point that when you're trying to – like. it's Hundreds, because it's this automatic natural barrier Mm. to get through, Mm -hmm. it it feels a better way of explaining how fast bowling is compared to kilometres per hour, of course, even though it's ridiculous to measure anything in Imperial these Mm. days. But still, for this, I I like the throwback. But anyway, so...
1: It is funny that that it is the upper limit, like the, that, that yeah. specifically is the one that, you know, a lot of people can almost get there, you know, they can, or not a lot, but there have been, you know, enough bowlers who can get to 95, 96, but, and it's the same with pitching in baseball, you know, it's really, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult to hit a hundred miles an hour with a pitch, but they can almost, you know, and occasionally it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's, it's tantalisingly close, but it's like the four minute mile was before it, Became obsolete, you know, before it got smashed again and again. But that 100 has stayed there as the upper ceiling. You know, there hasn't been a move past that.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. The four minute mile or or the 10 second 100 metre dash, which, of course, was broken 70 70 years ago, I think it was. But it's how close in proximity Mm. to 10 seconds that runners have gone. So this was an innings where South Africa were playing. In a relatively modest way, they were 115 for two when Shahabtar came back for his second spell, uh, and then he bowls Jacques Callis with a delivery that he does not see. <laughs> it's pretty obvious watching <laughs> Callis play all around it. He does not see the in-swinging Yorker that that takes out his off stump. And the next ball to Andrew Hudson, the identical delivery, leg before wicket. I don't think Hudson saw it either, so he's on yeah. a hat trick. Later in the spell, he uprooted middle stump with the quickest of the balls, I reckon, to Mark Boucher. It was just glorious to watch that Mm. pitch-perfect sort of... uh, that sound of ball hitting middle stump and cartwheeling it. There's only one type of delivery and it's that and and at this stage someone on commentary I'm not sure who it is but it's a South African accent saying we need to get somebody to South Africa and help them swing it with the old ball like Pakistan do which I did have a laugh at given that (laughs) South Africa did find a way to swing the old ball every other country did too by the way a generation on from that Lance Klusner was next and this is that angle from around the wicket that Shao would get with his Mm -hmm. sidearm action angling it and, and also taking the off stump and last but not least Fanny de Villiers was the fourth to lose stumps out of the ground in this spell in addition to the league before wicket. Pakistan bowled out South Africa for 231 Shawab finishes with 5 for 43, the number that we're looking at for this particular nerd pledge and they won the test match by 29 runs so he turned it on ahead in that spell mm-hmm. changed everything, they win, they go one up in the series and it's the first of 12 times in test cricket that he takes 5 wickets in an innings, 170 28 wickets added to 247 in one days and 19 in T20s. But I don't think he was ever better uh, than he was uh, with his first in Durban in 1998. And I think the only other spell that matches it for mine is uh, in 2002, so late 2002 uh, when Australia were over there and he pretty much ended Mark Waugh's career. And he bowled so quickly uh, with the in swinging Yorkers on that occasion. But this was a, yeah, a real sign of things to come and a very special
1: spell. <laughs> There's a satisfaction to the f- fact that they got the win because there was often this frustration thing with with Chobe that uh, like he wouldn't be backed up by other players on his team exactly. when he when yeah. he was on but also i think that what he did had such a high degree of difficulty that he couldn't do it all the time he could only do it sporadically so there were a lot of matches that he played where he wasn't quite there you know he wasn't that same force because because it w- it was it was such an instinctive thing in a way or to to become irresistible you need the right confluence of circumstances and fitness Mm -hmm. and enthusiasm and all of the rest of it but you know there there were days when he was um just absolutely frightening and and thrilling to watch Thank you,
0: Cheam Gadar. Uh, the second 543, Jeff, is from Peter Roberts, as you mentioned before. There's a clue here as well. It reads as follows There isn't a link to Scandinavia at this time, beyond the fact that Scandinavia is also north of the Barassi line.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. Now, this might take a little bit of explaining to various listeners, particularly those not from Australia, but it is going to let me pursue one of my enthusiasms, which is to discuss Japanese World War II maritime shipping stocks. The. The Barassi line is is based on the concept of the Brisbane line from the Second World War which was uh, the the mooted but never confirmed Australian government defence plan that uh, were Australia invaded by Japan they would retreat to a line I think drawn between Adelaide and Brisbane was sort of the idea to guard off the southeastern corner of Australia where most of the population was and and give the rest away which sounds pretty bad, but even trying to defend a line between Adelaide and Brisbane is... It's a really long way, so trying to do that with (laughs) 1940s technology and surveillance would have been pretty difficult in and of itself. The concept that Australia was about to be invaded by Japan is pretty much historically bullshit it still gets run around a lot these days that oh the you know that png the the kokoda trail and all of that was the key to stopping it which it wasn't because by the time they were fighting those battles in png the americans had already broken the japanese naval codes and were sinking all of their ships because they knew where they were at all times uh, because the japanese had to every ship had to send a, a code detailing its location every day to the main uh, operation in tokyo which meant that Everybody knew where their ships were all the time and they all got sunk. And so they didn't have any ships to get anyone to Australia, even if they'd wanted to invade it. But that is besides the point. I just thought (laughs) I'd put that on the record because it's good to learn things on Storytime. So post that, with the idea of the Brisbane line floating around, there comes this other term, which is the Barassi line. Ron Barassi was the most famous Australian rules footballer of several generations. And so the idea was that you could draw a line across Australia from about the Northern Territory down through central New South Wales down to Victoria and everything on the west of that line, that being Victoria, South Australia, WA, Northern Territory, those were the places where Australian rules football was dominant and everything to the east of that line being Canberra, the rest of New South Wales, Queensland, was rugby territory, either rugby union or rugby league. The theory being that people on the rugby side of the Barassi line, Ron Barassi was the only Australian rules footballer they would have heard of. Would you concur... Australian Rules Football historian Adam Collins.
0: Yeah, I've always well, it, it's debated, isn't it? Where on the eastern seaboard the yeah. Barassi line formal? I mean, I don't think well, obviously it's not an official <laughs> term, so you can interpret it how you will. <laughs> but I always thought that Canberra was an interesting part of this, mm. having lived in the ACT. The way that Aussie Rules is interpreted, I mean, mm. it, it is fundamentally a rugby league town and yeah. a rugby town, but yeah. I'd say you know the it's Raiders town.
1: It's a Raiders town more town. than a Brumbies town.
0: Yeah, but also I think that it's an AFL town now as well. And I use Mm. that advisedly saying AFL. I don't mean Aussie rules necessarily. Mm. I don't mean like writ large Aussie rules. I mean kind of Mm. like following the Australian Football League Mm. kind of town. Like there's a lot of interest in in top flight Aussie rules there and also at, at a local level too. So yeah, I, I'm interested in where Canberra fits into that. But generally speaking, yeah, you're spot on. The yeah. idea that the Brassy was the only player they knew, and that everybody mm-hmm. to the I suppose you'd call it the south of the Brassy line didn't give a fuck about you know Origin or mm. the Wallabies or fucking Andrew Eddinghausen or whatever. Mm. Um, that's just a thing that happened somewhere else.
1: Yeah, yeah. We on on the on the. Victorian side of the Barassi line, we knew who Wally Lewis was and nobody else. And on the other That's side they, they knew I don't know who why I went Andrew I went,
0: I went with Andrew Eddinghouse and that was a that was a reach for me. I'm like, who's I, I was thinking for a while there, I don't know a single player to reference here, but yeah, I went with I, E. T.
1: but Yeah, <laughs> that, that was interesting. I mean maybe you could have gone like Mark Aller or David Campisi or something. I don't know. There, there, sure. there are a few. Nonetheless, we're getting into all our football codes. So I'm sure there are people in Canberra who enjoy Australia that rules football. Um, it, it, it's so Canberra's like a couple of hours to the east of of Wagga Wagga, which is. Mm. Central New South Wales, but that's a big Aussie rules town for whatever reason. A lot of players, professional players well, come both, from there. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's both.
0: also w- like the both bits, isn't it? Like it's, it's yeah. actually split down the middle, yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's more integrated than that. And it's also a good town to be arrested in if you are a former guest of the show, Will Anderson or Michael Slater. So, you know, good to you know, <laughs> check out what wogga Wagga has to offer you through the police at its airport. Now, where I'm going with this is that Peter has said that it has to be north of the Barassi line, right? So this involves something in probably Canberra or Sydney or Queensland, right? Um, the or, or, you know, it could be Central Coast. We were up at the Central Coast of New South Wales last week talking about Bellingen and Adam Gilchrist and, mm. and all the rest of it. So th- this is kind of where we're looking at. But Sydney is the, the rugby league heartland town. You know, it's got about 83 NRL clubs. That's where it happens. And there's that that sort of mixed up the melting pot, if you will, of the Sydney Cricket Ground, where they play the cricket, but they also play a lot of rugby league, and teams like the Sydney Roosters and so on, and they also play AFL with the Sydney Swans having used that ground a fair bit. So, but but it's it's an it's still I'd still identify it as an NRL ground ahead of a, an AFL ground because the Swans are still resented as a sort of. Johnny-come-lately blow-in who came in from Melbourne in the 1980s. So, you know, they are not. They haven't been around for long <laughs> enough to be considered truly Sydney by various people. So our number is $5.43, and it's got to relate to something north of the Barassi line, which did make me think, as Adam did, of a bowling analysis of five for 43, because I happen to know that there was a set of figures taken in an innings of a test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground in which a player took 5 for forty-three, It was okay. a series involving a best of the rest of the world team playing against Australia. It was uh, an innings analysis that was taken by a former and relatively recent guest of the final word. It was taken ah. at the Sydney Cricket Ground by, guess who, SCG, SCG. McGill.
0: Mm. Got to be. SCG McGill. Yeah, I like it. I like where you've gone
1: with it. It's it boxes. It's got a football link. It's got a rugby link. It's got a. It's all there.
0: It's all there. It's all there. Thank you, Peter, for giving us that chance to go into a discussion around the relative merit of uh, stuff you learn at university. Jeff, when you're finished doing this, maybe you should go back and and uh, and teach and lecture in this field. You've certainly done the work yourself before. Uh, <laughs> before working on what we're doing here, so <laughs> very good. Uh, shall we move on?
1: Yeah, look, let's let's so unless, you know, unless you have any um like barass-y <laughs> insights you, you'd like to share. Oh,
0: well, I I really want to ask you about the Battle of the Coral Sea, really, but we'll do that off air.
1: I let's <laughs> uh let's
0: I, I want to talk to you more about the other yeah. stuff, but that's not all I would do at that point is bore everybody else. So, let's yeah. um I, I was listening to an excellent podcast about this recently, but that doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Move the, on. Next up. The number. Battle
1: The Battle of the Coral Sea was really the alternative to invading Australia because it it, it was about Japan trying to cut off Australia from the US um, to cut off the shipping lines. Mm-hmm. By occupying mm. the the Solomons and Bougainville and, and so on, and thus the Battle of the Coral Sea was the air, aerial naval battle that tried to push back those lines of occupation. But yes, we can talk about that else, elsewhere.
0: <laughs> we can and we will. Two twenty two is our next number, Jeff. It's another double header, and we've got some clues as well.
1: Mm, yes. Okay. So coming into this one, we have Srikanth agram and we have John Tucker. Srikanth wrote to us and said, do you want a simple clue or a cryptic clue? And I said, I feel like you want one of these things and you should do the thing that you want it to. (laughs) And so Srikanth said, great, cryptic. And I was like, fuck. And he's like, all right. The cryptic clue is 169 plus 115 does not equal 222, which just makes your brain hurt beginning to look like it. Like it's set up as a mathematical equation and we've said that we're not good at maths, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose the good thing is we're able to work out the first bit relatively easily. The 169 and 115, because of because we've become quite adept at using databases, we arrived at what the innings was going to be, mm. but I couldn't for the life of me see where 222 fit in. That's where you took over. Okay. So
1: this is quite an extraordinary uh, team innings in a test match involving India and South Africa from... When was it, 97 or thereabouts? Yes, I think it actually might be 1998
0: as well, come to think of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I will check that while you keep talking.
1: Okay. It's, It's in the late 90s. The 169 and the 115 are scores made by a couple of Indian batsmen. So I'll come to that in a second. Adam was talking about Lance Klusner just before. This was Klusner's fourth test in uh, at the start of his career. So he had the extraordinary debut where he didn't take a wicket in his first bowling innings, and then he took eight for 64 in his second innings. And then here in his fourth test, he was batting at number nine, made an unbeaten 100 at a runner ball, was the fastest test century by a South African, and then he grabbed a run out and a wicket the same evening after they declared at 500-plus before stumps. So he was having a, a pretty fun start to his <laughs> test career, Lance Klusner.
0: Yes, and it was in 1997 for the record, Jeff It was the first week of 1997 at Cape Town.
1: Right. So having been declared upon 530-odd behind, Sachin Tendulkar makes 169. Mohammad Adin makes the 115. He comes in at number seven due to a night watchman. And It's one of these extraordinary innings because that's about it as far as runs go for that team. So Ganguly makes 23, the rest of the batsmen make 32 runs between them, (laughs) and then there's 169 for Tendulkar and 115 for Azaruddin. So 169 and 115 together do not equal 222, but they kind of do because the partnership that those two put on was 222. Out of 359, an extraordinary partnership. So, Tendulkar would have been on about 20, uh, depending on extras, when Azharuddin came out to join him at the crease. And it wasn't just that they made 222. It was that they absolutely bashed 222. Like, <laughs> they're going at more than five and a half and over. They put on that 222 in the space of 40 overs. And I was watching everything I could find of, of that partnership back online. And it's just... Exhilarating stuff, there's there's a period where aerodin just hits the switch and he hits eight boundaries in a row through the offside, not off consecutive balls, but that these are these are the only boundaries being scored in the innings. They're all by him, and they're all between cover and backward point, just bang, 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 crack, bang. Then he gets dropped at cover by Cronier. Then he smacks two more fours through the offside just to say, I don't care, I'll keep playing them. Um, <laughs> brings up his 100 going at about a runner ball before he's eventually out. I think he's caught off Paul Adams, uh, the the frog in a blender spinner. So maybe this is what Srikanth meant as well. Is that is that their scores do not equal two twenty two because they were worth more than two twenty two in a way because because the exhilaration that it provided, the the way that it. Turned the feeling of that match around was so good, and you know it was a lost cause, but it, it was that would have absolutely given a, a lot of heart and, and something to thoroughly enjoy, given the way they went about it. And there was also very nearly a nice little connecting part, which was that one sixty nine for Sachin, one fifteen for Azaruddin. Sports betting enthusiast in, in later times, but a bit more committed to playing good cricket at that particular time. If you take those two innings out of all of the runs that India scored across both innings through the rest of the test match, they very nearly total 222 for every other run scored by India. They ended up with 219 runs from oh. other places that were not oh. the Sachin innings and the Azhar innings. Even, in the though, even
0: though I really admire your in- initial interpretation, I think that's nice and we'll go with it. How much better would have it been had it been mm-hmm. two twenty two as a remainder? Ah, yeah. Not to worry. I, I was scouring
1: um, the scorecard, seeing if I could find a run somewhere or other, but not to be found. <laughs> uh,
0: even in the sundries column, I'm, no. I'm sure you checked the sundries column. Yeah, you did.
1: Yeah, not always. Be. Always okay. check your sundries.
0: Uh, Strickth, thank you for your two twenty two. As for John Tucker, we had a free swing at this, and my first thought was, could this be the first nerd pledge about? A nerd pledge. Could this be a tribute to Philip Meng, who was the inventor of Nerd Pledge via his edited contribution of 222, all the way back in? or oh gee, it might be nearly two years ago, Jeff. I reckon Philip Meng's 222 might have been around the start of the World Cup.
1: I think in it was before that. I think it was, was 2000 it just before. I, I reckon well, it was certainly more than
0: 2019. Two years, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was yeah. It was, it was, the, the patron page started slowly, albeit, mm. but it, it, it did open in, I think, March 2019 yeah, or thereabouts. February, so February. February, right? So it couldn't have been long. And I reckon we weren't doing Nerd Pledge in the way we do it now until fairly deep into the World Cup. So it might mm-hmm. be a two-year tribute to Philip Meng, uh, which has enabled us to make this program each week. I hope it is. When we looked at 222 historically, we've usually kind of trended towards remarkable batting feats, such as Nathan Astle, who... I think the last time 222 came up, we spoke about having made the fastest double century by a mile from 153 balls, when Gilchrist, of course, had the record before that with 204 deliveries a a couple of months earlier. So, yeah, and of course, on on that occasion, it was Astle sort of, I think they were chasing about 550 and he was giving it his best and the game was over, whereas with Gilchrist, it was in the first innings of a match. But nevertheless, it's, it's a record that Astle proudly held. But we haven't really looked at bowling figures of, 2 for 22 and i think if when i see 222 two, i think mm. of, you know the beno 2 for 22 so really we should have a quick scan through and see where the relevant two for twenty twos are found. One of those is in the very first Test match, Jeff. So Tom Garrett for Australia picked up two for twenty two, and he did the top and tail. He got batsman mm-hmm. one and batsman eleven. <laughs> so uh, so that that's a nice sort of uh, way of twinning them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, look, he, he, it was wasn't the first wicket of the uh, the England innings. Uh, that was taken mm. by John Hodges. So, but he still he got in second. By taking out batsman number one mm. and then batsman number 11. And speaking of uh, topping and tailing, there was a two for 22 this year where Ishant Sharma uh, did exactly the same thing against England in Chennai. So there are a couple of options for top and tail two for 22s. Between times, uh, some of our favourites have had that analysis over the years. Tibby Cotter, who we were discussing the other week. Charlie McCartney, who I was having a conversation about the other day. Uh, Dave Norse, Keith Miller, Davo, uh, Michael Holding, Mary Duggan, Poonam Yadav... And when Australia played their one and only Test match in Zimbabwe in 1999 The time honoured uh, Trophy that's never been named Damien Fleming took two for 22 And by definition it's the most economical Spell bowled by an Australian in Zimbabwe Because they only bowled in two innings So he went at 1.47 runs per Over and if you want to go full circle On Nathan Astle uh, He took two for 22 in Harare At the same ground in the following year So um, there is a, a suite of options For two for 22 John
1: but the top, I love the top and the tail because you have the top and tail in 1877, the top and tail from 1877 to 2021, and then the top yeah. and tail of Nathan Astle, who made 222 and took two for 22. <laughs> nice, isn't it? Nice when these things come together, Jeff. Beautifully sits together. I, I thought that trophy did have a name. I thought it was called the Southern Cross Trophy or something like that.
0: Oh, yes. Actually, I th- that, that does ring a bell, doesn't it? I think you're right. It did get a name, and it may be something like that.
1: I thought I I reckon it it was something that had nothing to do with anything you're like both these countries are in the southern hemisphere um yeah also hot tip for anyone in australia who is like the southern cross is an emblem of our country you can see it from anywhere in the southern hemisphere and even like around the (laughs) equator and slightly north of the equator Uh, it's also on the national flag of brazil and about 50 uh, pacific island countries so yeah not particularly australian they're stars they're in the sky other people can see them too I'm not entirely
0: sure from a quick Google whether um, whether it is called the Southern Cross uh, Trophy. or. But I, I, I think you're right, though. It was something like that, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. They, they went with something fairly generic. Maybe in the future uh, they can find a cricketer that mm-hmm. has had an involvement with both Zimbabwe cricket and Australian cricket, or maybe just somebody who was part of the Australian team that lost mm-hmm. uh, at Nottingham in, in 1983. So Trevor Chappell uh, was yep. prominent in that game, wasn't he? So that might be the person to name it. uh the Jason- thought?
1: Jason Gillespie used to coach the Moshona Land Eagles, I believe. Um, okay. Yeah, you're yep. right. He did coach
0: over there. Who else has had an involvement in both countries? There'll be other players. There'll be other administrators and coaches and all the rest. But uh, um, Was Dav Watmore involved with Zimbabwe at some point? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I obviously he was involved in Sri Lankan cricket, but... Um, he might have um, detoured through there for a coaching mm-hmm. spurt at one stage or another. Anyway, come to us. You tell us, dear listeners, uh, who uh, the, um, the Zimbabwe Australian Test Trophy, which doesn't get played for, of course. It's all yeah. academic, who it should be named after. I reckon, that, I reckon there's a greater probability that Australia will play PNG in a test match mm-hmm. before they play Zimbabwe in a test match again.
1: Yeah. You you used to say, I think there's a greater probability that Australia will play either Afghanistan or Ireland in the test match, and it turns out they're <laughs> going to play them both. Well,
0: they're not playing Ireland. <laughs> Did you see this story the other oh. day? I don't know who wrote it, but, I mean, it's been... it was I think, again, it was Tristan Lavalette. He has another follow-up on the mm. story from the other week where Cricket Island are like, we absolutely have no visibility on this whatsoever. Okay. Nobody has spoken to us about this. I don't think that's happening. I think we've all been duped there. Good yarn. Mm. Uh, great story to tell, but I don't think it's happening.
1: Okay. All right. All right. Um, okay. So where are we? That's the double header for Srikanth Agram and John Tucker at the $2.22.
0: And next up is your old, I was going to call him your nemesis, but he's not, is he? He's more your lover when it comes to Matters Nerd Pledge, Rob O'Neill. <laughs> And it's it could be interpreted as a Julio pledge two zero zero, but I'm willing to accept that Rob O'Neill is sending through a Julio pledge. Indeed, it did come with a clue. It's mm. the number two, but it relates to a first. Jeff, uh, how'd you go?
1: Yeah, well, so uh, Rob did send a message straight up having changed uh, this number to 200 to say, do not mistake this for a Julio pledge. You know, (laughs) I, 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 the great Rob (laughs) O'Neill, will never give you something that you don't have to work for six weeks for. So, and I did say, okay, the number two is, that's pretty broad, Rob. That's pretty broad. Could you... At least start beyond the first step of this journey, to which he replied, it's the number two, but it relates to a first. So, I'm going to go pretty literal for this initially, and I was very pleased that you mentioned Tom Garrett before playing in 1877, because I thought, mm-hmm. the number two, but it relates to a first. What if it's the first player to play for two countries? Okay. The the first player to play test cricket for two countries was the wonderfully named Billy Midwinter, which also sounds like some sort of Marvel Universe villain who can freeze shit or something like that, you know. (laughs) I am Billy Midwinter. (laughs) Remember the Batman movie where Arnie played Mr Freeze um, and, like, had to do all the the bad punchlines? And, like, I have a brain worm from that that has never left me where I will still say to people... Ice to meet you, <laughs> in, heard you say in, it. <laughs> in that voice. <laughs> to the point where I'm barely conscious of actually doing it anymore. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad time. It's funny that it's Billy Midwinter. I would have said,
0: I would have thought instinctively that it would have been Billy Murdoch mm. as the first dual national or um, probably, or JJ Ferris, I suppose, but
1: I would have gravitated yep. towards Murdoch, but Billy Midwinter, tell us more. They came just after that, you know, a few, a few years on, but Billy Midwinter mm. played in the first... Two test matches ever. He played for Australia in those first two. He, in fact, took the first five wicket haul in test cricket mm. in the same innings where Tom Garrett took the two for 22. Huh. Billy Midwinter took five for 78. I love when the things that we're working on separately cross over like this. Mm. So he played twice for Australia in 1877. And then the next time England came to Australia, so not even in England, but England touring in Australia, he played for England in 1881-82 and played four (laughs) tests for England and then he said you know what fuck it I didn't like them and he came back and played for Australia again and played six more test matches for Australia
0: (laughs) we saw the Martin (laughs) McCaig the Martin McCaig story this week that our uh, our colleague Marty Smith wrote up for the Cricket Australia website about how he was dubbed as a traitor when he visited Mm. Australia in 94-95 having grown up here and initially played first class cricket in Australia and having grown up here but Having the British link through and and, and being eligible to mm. play for England, playing first-class cricket over there, and ending up in two Ashes series in '93 and then '94, '95, and he was given a really hard time for doing that. Well, all he needed to do was point to the to the great Billy Midwinter, who mm-hmm. picked and chose who he played for based on the series. By yeah. the sounds of things,
1: yeah. Um, there was also a story that I I half read but didn't have time to go through that apparently he was supposed to play a test for Australia in England in 1879 or whatever it was and then W.G. Grace came and pinched him to go and play for Grace's county team because they were a man short. <laughs> so he just rocked up to the Oval and was like, Oi, you're coming with me? And, like, dragged him into a, a, a horse-drawn handsome cab and took him to the Oval from Lords or whatever it was. Um, and half the Australian players, like, chased him across town to try to get their player back and couldn't. So, for you your, know...
0: That's, that's, for, uh, that's for your county, of course, Gloucestershire, Jeff. Yeah, yeah the, the freaks. The, the WG freaks. Mm-hmm. This is great. I'm enjoying everything so far. But what he really did there, Jeff, he he missed the chance to complete the set. He could have played for England in both countries and Australia in both countries had Grace allowed
1: him to do that rather than (laughs) heading heading down the – well, I suppose it wasn't the M4 then to play in Bristol. (laughs) I don't know if he – I don't think he played for England in England. He played for England in Australia and Australia in Australia and and then I guess – I think when his, his remaining six tests for Australia in the third part of his career might have all been in Australia. So maybe he didn't play for either country. Uh, I'm confused now. This is worse than the third cousins thing. Um. <laughs> you got a lot of love for that last week. There was, some very enthous- there was, a, there was a
0: tea towel that we had sent through that went through pretty much the same calculations you did trying to work out the difference between a third cousin and a cousin three times removed. Um, It was an educative experience story time two weeks ago. Go back and listen to it.
1: Yeah, so I think you can also just uh, kind of interpret that the way you want. Like, you can be a third cousin once removed or a first cousin three times removed, and that's the same thing. Anyway, I I don't want to confuse people any more than I have already. So let's come back to the number two but a first. So it could be the first player to play for two countries. It could also be the first player to make two centuries in a test match because you talked the other week about... Jack Russell, the elder, the early yes. Jack Russell, the 1920s and 30s Jack Russell being the first English player to make twin tons, but he wasn't the first overall. He was the second overall because Warren Bardsley did it for Australia at the Oval in 1909. It was the fifth test of a shit tour for him in the test matches. He was making runs in the tour games, but was averaging 16 across the first four tests in, in his first test series. And then in the fifth and final test of the series, bang, makes 136 and 130, opening the batting to get a draw while Australia's 2-1 up and make sure they win the series. Pretty handy way to go out. Uh, He Mm. was top scorer in the triangular series in 1912 that we love looking at so much, South Africa, England, Australia. If Billy Midwinter had been there, he would have played for South Africa at some point in there as well. (laughs) (laughs) It just turned out for each of the three sides at one point. Um, So, you know, I love that for Warren. But interestingly, you know, missed cricket during the First World War, plugged away until 1926 when they went to England, and at that point he's 43 and a half or more than. He carries his bat in the second test for 193 not out, Um, a a great opening batting effort, and then he becomes temporary captain in the third test uh, when he has to step in for an illness vacancy. So to this day he remains the oldest Australian player to make a Test 100 thanks to that. 193 not out, and he's still the oldest player from any team to captain aside side for the first time at the age of 43 and a half. So he holds a, a long-standing record from 1926, and, and he's still the third oldest century maker of all time. So there are only a couple of English players, Jack Hobbs and somebody else went past him a few years later, but at the time he was the oldest hundred maker and still is for Australia. So that's Warren Bardsley, and that might have something to do, it probably won't, with the $2 for Rob O'Neill.
0: He'll be shuffled off the podium when Darren Stevens makes his maiden test 100 at age 47 in a Mm -hmm. couple of years from now. So watch out, Warren Bardsley. (laughs) 1926 Ashes is the last of what I think of as the shit Ashes series where Mm -hmm. they were three-day affairs for the first four matches, which meant that they made the decider timeless and that's when Mm. they brought back Wilfred Rhodes out of retirement. It's not that he was retired, he just hadn't played a test for like five years and Rhodes bowls England to victory at the Oval and they win the series. I think they win the series 1-0 after four draws when they're playing these ridiculous three-day games and then you press fast forward to 1930 and they they get with the program and um, that's when Bradman arrives and I suppose everything changes.
1: Mm. Well, sometimes everything can change, including Clary Grimmett's test career. (laughs) Bradman... (laughs) Uh, I think that's it for the new numbers. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, this is the key thing, Uh, and, and maybe we should have mentioned this off the top, but we beat Jimmy Anderson. Yes. We went, we went past the 614. So the people on Patreon who've signed up, we wanted to get to 614, oh, which is the number you. of test wickets that Anderson has taken thus far. We've gone to 616. We're probably going to slip back a few at the end of the month because that's when people's some people's credit cards expire and, the, and they drop off. And on the 2nd of June, James Anderson is probably going to start taking wickets again unless England are batting. And even then, you wouldn't rule him out. He'll find a way. He'll Billy Midwinter it. He'll just pop up and he'll bowl for New Zealand in the first innings and England in the second. So, uh, yeah, so we're on six sixteen, but we've got to keep forging ahead to see whether we can stay ahead of Jimmy while he plays 83 test matches in the next couple of months. So if you want to get on, you go to patreon.com slash the final word, you sign up, you put a number in, and then we see that number and we write it down on the magic spreadsheet and it comes up on the show in due time and we tell a story about it. If you have a story that you want us to tell and you want to be the person on the show having your name read out, talk about the bright lights, talk about being on Broadway, you too could be featured on the Final Word Storytime Cricket Podcast. You could play it in the car to annoy your significant other. You can brag to your friends. You can put it on a T-shirt. We'll make a T-shirt for you with that on it. Like, whatever. We'll make it happen. Send us a number. It's fun. Let's take a break, Jeff. on Storytime. We'll be back in a bit uh, with revisits,
0: confirmations and a new twist on the Bannerman.
1: Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff.
0: Jeff, we're proud of the fact that uh, a fundraising goal has been set by one of our patrons. None other than Declan Lawler. As we've explained on the show over the last couple of weeks, he's running the entirety of the Thames track in mid-July which totals 180 miles a ridiculous length for a run he's doing it in four days and that's the sort of thing that we can all get behind on the final word and what he's been Mm. doing is sending us updates week to week so we can tell you what he's doing to help inspire you hopefully to throw a few bob his way as he builds towards his target
1: first of all that's too many miles um, per day I've just done a little bit of arithmetic in my head because I can do that that's 45 miles a day that's yeah. Now a marathon's forty-two kilometres, and a kilometre is less yeah. than a mile. So he's doing more <laughs> miles than there are kilometres in a marathon every day for four days. This is Declan- Cliff Young shit. This is no. this
0: is Cliff Young in the gumboots. boots. This is mm. ultra marathon stuff, and it all comes back to the fact that he heard us talking about the Lord's Taverners and the tough time the tabs have been having not sort of raising money from people who are listening to pro- programs like this, but from like the huge lunches that they can put on, mm. amazing events, spectacular events. They can't do that. So this year, it's, they've got to be creative in yep. order to make sure they raise the same kind of money they ordinarily would pre-COVID. Mm. And that means asking people to do things like this, to raise money on behalf of them.
1: Yeah, well, normally if you're a charity, you target getting money off rich people but in order to do that you need to make the rich people feel important so you need to put on something for them so that they feel posh and then they give you the money and when you can't do that you've got to look at other ways to do it not that they don't do it in other ways the rest of the time but all that you're left with are the other ways, and the ways like people like Declan being an absolute lunatic and uh, doing things like he's doing now. He sent us a message to say uh, the amount that he's raised has already surpassed the test wicket tally of Mattia as a significant milestone. Uh, That is good stuff. And he says, speaking of milestones, uh, too many of them, Declan, 180 milestones for you, by the way. (laughs) Uh, He says, yesterday I ran a marathon plus a bit for the first time. Ah. Declan, you're doing this for the first time and then you've got to do like two marathons a day in about six weeks. He said the joy of completing this was quickly overridden by the thought of having to run another 75% of that again. (laughs) This is the daily average that I will be running across the four days. Uh, So, look, if you want to help Declan out, you want to help him raise some money that can go towards helping kids who are living with disability or living in disadvantaged situations um, all across the UK and uh, also in other situations, overseas. You can. Uh, you can go to the link that will be in the show notes for Declan's page specifically, and you can throw money in there. Or you can go to lordstaverners.org and find other campaigns. You can even set up your own campaign if you want to do something a bit like this, or maybe maybe it doesn't have to be quite as insane. Maybe it can be go and walk up some mountains, the Yorkshire Three Peaks, Glencoe to Ben Nevis, whatever it might be. You could do it over a longer period of days than four if you wanted to, you know, not do what Declan's doing Uh, but you could also set up your own fundraising thing and uh, get people to throw money your way to send to the taverners.
0: Yeah. And those group activities that you mentioned then, Jeff, that's the way in which if you're an individual and you want to take something on, there'll be other people doing it too. So what the Lord's Tabs provide you with is the architecture, the infrastructure to do your own fundraising efforts. So you don't need to be part of some massive apparatus. Um, you can do it with other people who are taking on things like that, like a big thing like the Three Peaks. You don't necessarily want to be doing it on your own. So you're still part of a broader team in the process, which is super exciting. So, this year, much as it was last year for the Lords Tabs, is a crucial year. Get behind what they're doing. All of this will be in the show notes at org, including the extra challenges and events you can take up and including the link to support Declan Lawler.
1: Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, This is the final words, story time, the second part of the show, the revisit section where we get back to the numbers that we may not have got right the first time around because we don't always, we're not perfect, neither are you, that's okay, we will go through life flawed but ultimately triumphant in some way, a triumph of the spirit. There were some things we didn't get to last week because the show had gone on for so long uh, but there were some lovely links last week between some of the answers that, that, that won't, be there because we're going to do some of these things in a different show. But I just wanted to throw up so that you might remember if you listened last week, we were talking about Ferenda Sawag making the fastest triple centuries. We were talking about Stuart Law of Queensland. And We were talking about Adam Gilchrist. All of these things came up at different times. That's, that's all I want to say. Okay,
0: so that, that's, that's wetting the appetite. I, I, I see where you're going here. All right, let's revisit some numbers that we got wrong before. Sean McGiven. We liked our dusty old bastard, Jim Sims. In fact, he might have been the favourite of our dusty old bastard collection so far. However, Sean uh, confesses that despite having taken a quick look at the caps list um, and the fact that we didn't disappoint uh, and he loved hearing about the old Wasler and he did some minimal research on that too, the number is actually about a player with an even lower number on that England caps list. And while he's an old bastard, I think it's safe to say he played in such a way that dust was never likely to settle
1: when he was at the crease. Now, mm. well, this was one of these uh, these ones that made a little synapse go somewhere in my brain. And I. it's nice when you, you don't actually have to look things up necessarily because you think, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what this is. I was like, 286, 286, 286, 286. Gilbert Jessop made something like 286, didn't he? Something around 286. And indeed he did. Uh, <laughs> he played first-class cricket for, guess who, the Freaks down in Gloucestershire for 20 yep. years, starting in 1894, Gilbert Jessop. He played 18 Test matches along the way. He was a relatively short, powerfully built gentleman, Bold, fast, brilliant fielder, thought to be by an absolute distance, the best fielder of that era. Um, And when he batted, he was known as the croucher because he used to get in this low stance and sort of get under the bat. And he used to hit genuine sixes at a time when the ball had to actually leave the grounds in their entirety, like <laughs> go into the road or the river or something to be counted as a six. If it went over the over the rope or into the stands, it was just a four or, or a five, depending where you were in the world. So they didn't have the sort of rope as the edge of the arena in that kind of um, understanding back in the day. So when the contemporary writer Rob Smythe, who's been on the show before, wrote a book about ashes figures, he quotes a poem by Ralph Delahaye Payne, which contains this quatrain. At one end, stocky Jessop frowned, the human catapult who wrecks the roofs of distant towns when set in his assault. So this is the way he's seen at the time. Jessop is dangerous. Jessop goes out and just batters bowling when he feels like it. His most famous test match is at the Oval in 1902. So there's this famous run chase where England are nine down. They need... 15 runs to win. Uh, George Hurst is out there with, with Wilfred Rhodes and there's this apocryphal line that says, we'll get them in the singles, which neither of them actually said. But in order for them to get within 15 runs uh, in the first place, uh, Jessup had to do something special, uh, which he did. He came in and batted at number seven. England were five for 48. Chasing 263 And then he made 104 runs In just over an hour (laughs) And (laughs) put them in a position To win the test match So that was his famous test day out But his biggest day out of all Was the 286 in a county match Against Sussex Less than 3 hours To make 286 runs So Like, you know, 100 an hour, it was 170 minutes all up. So, two hours and 50 minutes to make 286 runs out of a team score of 355. So, it was a bannerman to boot (laughs) with 80.5% of the team runs. And to this day remains the fastest Double hundred in terms of time Anyway they didn't record the deliveries In that match but he got the double Hundred in 120 minutes So he got to 200 in two hours He also has second place on the fastest Double hundreds list with Another one that he made against Somerset in 130 minutes so we were talking About Sawag's fast triples and Then the fastest triples by minutes of Wally Hammond and and Don Bradman but Jessup has both of the two fastest double hundreds by minutes, still, even though he made them in the early
0: 1900s. Absolutely brilliant. HyperCourse actually sent us through a a link on the weekend which has reconstructed scorecards from before the time Mm -hmm. they counted balls to work out. I I suppose the way they would have done it was was, was almost redoing the game and Mm -hmm. trying to evaluate how many balls were faced by players. And I think I'm right in saying that Bradman's triple is the quickest by balls as well as minutes. Uh, well i think hammond's was quickest by minutes but bradman had him covered for balls something like that but mm. I, I was on the hop at the time when i was reading it costas uh, but i did take note of it and uh and i did make a point in my head of saying i'll go back to that before story time it didn't happen but you can uh, mm. if you go into my twitter replies and see my conversations with Hypercost. you will also be able to find a link to the <laughs> bradman and hammond's triple hundreds uh, where they've tried to work out how many balls they may have faced
1: yeah, there there's a lot of – a wealth of information on there, so I'm sure we'll plough into it. We're revisiting the $12.19 from Shane Fagg. We were looking at uh, Ricky Ponting's birthday, the 19th of December, because we were looking at other birthdays during that show. Uh, Shane uh, wrote to us to say uh, he loves Ricky Ponting's work, loved the pull shot. That wasn't where he was going with the twelve nineteen. He said he's spent the weekend with his dad, who has regaled him with a few old tales, including the time he made 222 <laughs> huh? as a 50-year-old in the Bundy League in a losing team. Uh, absolute, uh, Surely that must have been Bannerman adjacent uh, at that point. So not Ricky Ponting, but Shane said, how about a riddle for a hint? All right. All right. Well, we had Trev from Perth doing some poetry on Wednesday. Shane has qualified this by saying, I am not Earth Boy, <laughs> but it is fun to try. Here we go. Trying to be a bit coy, to see if you can see through my 1219 ploy. When find this cricketer you do, a spotlight long deserved shall come due. The team was his one and all, whether batting, fielding or with the ball. The record that is his alone is one that I truly do bemoan. Hmm. Left that with you, Adam.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's a really good uh, way to try and steer us there, Shane Fag. All right, well, where I went with it was to a cricketer by the name of Samuel Percy Jones, or Sammy Jones, as he went, uh, long deserved, per the poem, on account of the fact that he was an 1880s star, um, and I, I think that we've never had a chance to talk about him But he's a celebrated player from that time Yet at the same time There's no Crick Info profile for him So there, there's a few yeah. blanks to colour in here But what I was able to deduce That he grew up in Sydney Played for New South Wales as a teenager Was a right-handed bat and a cagey seamer So an all-round threat He made his test debut in 1882 at the SCG The last test before the Ashes sort of formally started Later that year at the Oval Just the sixth test match yeah. ever As it was defined later and he got into a stoush with W. G. Grace uh, in uh, that famous match at the Oval, where England were all out oh. for seventy-seven. Oh,
1: he's that—he's that—he's that, he's Sam Jones, right? Yeah, yes, he, the one who gets run out.
0: Yes. So in the third innings of the match, he's run out whilst patting the pitch down, but the ball's dead, and he doesn't like the fact that Grace has upheld this appeal and there's a brawl with him, I don't know whether they came to fisticuffs I like the idea that they may have, but certainly a very mm. heated discussion was had on the field it didn't matter of course because Australia mm. win and, and the Ashes are, are struck. Uh, when England But Australia fought.
1: won because of that, because Spofforth was so enraged by this that he marched into the England dressing rooms at the end of that day and absolutely stripped the paint off the walls and <laughs> gave it to WG Grace in front of his team and said basically you cheating bastards, I will fucking ruin you I'll oh, fucking have you oh. and he did, he bowled him out for 70 because he was still steaming he was absolutely furious and yeah so that's it's it's one of the great miscalculations uh, in terms of tactics on the field and sammy jones was yeah right in the middle of
0: it the man who was uh, the run out or given out run out his high score in test cricket was 87 at old trafford in 1886 so four years later opening the batting with captain tup scott a name i always like but by this stage he wasn't really bowling quite as much However, in 1885 at the MCG, he did have his day. He was turned to as fifth change. I love back in those old scorecards, you either see two or three bowlers do all the work or nine bowlers used to the course mm. of an innings. This was the latter. Um, he took four for 47 from 25.2 overs. And the last of those, he bowled Bobby Peel, another favourite of the final word. He finished up in 1888 uh, and that was the, the test match of that Peel and Loman marathon that we discussed a, a couple mm. of weeks ago where they bowled 97 of the 100 overs uh, in the Australian first innings when they were all out for 42, all mm-hmm. out 82 in the second innings. So Sammy All-Up played 12 tests and averaged 21 with the bat, but his six wickets with the ball were at 19. So 12 test matches, averaging 19 with the ball. That's how I've that together for twelve nineteen, He moved to uh, <laughs> New Zealand in uh, 1904 and kept playing okay. first-class cricket until he was 47 years of age, so until 1908, and that ended his career, which spanned 30 years, and he lived beyond the Second World War. Uh, he was still involved in cricket until his final decade, passed away at age 89 in 1951. Sammy Jones.
1: Sammy Jones, the guy who... Made the guy do the thing that got the other guy mad. Uh, that that started the ashes, right? That's the ashes creation match, right? Eighteen eighty-two. Yeah. yeah, that's the, right. Yeah, yep. That's the, the advert you know, in the paper. The English cricket. The body will be cremated, etc. Lovely stuff. I Seems like, it. like a bit uh, of an overreaction in hindsight, doesn't it? I mean, yeah,
0: they're mm. all out for seventy-seven chasing eighty-five, but I mean, it's not. I mean, you think about the the, the response there. It's like cricket is now mm. officially over because we've been rolled yep. in the fourth innings. I mean, you didn't see. I mean, I, I yeah. think I just think they, they overdid it a bit. Well, was it was a disproportionate look, response given how frequently teams were bowled out for double-digit scores in that era.
1: It, yes, but it was eighteen eighty-two. They'd only started playing the old uh, the the colonies, you know, five years earlier. <laughs> and you know, far be it from me to suggest that the English establishment has a, a problem with ego or or you know feeling that they're better than other people. But you know, if Somebody else might make that suggestion. And if that were the case, in theory, they may have felt that they should not have been beaten by people from Australia <laughs> ever, ever. Well, get used to it because they had to. Uh, what's next? Next, we have
0: uh, John Trevelyan. 134 was the number. We initially went with a combination of Carlos Brathwaite and Shaggy Udall. (laughs) Neither of those were right. Uh, John says, I was enjoying the wanderings in the smug confidence that it wouldn't get close to my number. Then, damn it, if Jeff didn't get close. Anyway, my further clues are that if I were more generous, I'd have pledged 155 instead of 134. And it's all wrapped up in an even three Pounds and he puts the actual pound sign in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff, this is
1: uh, over to you. Yeah, so it was one pound thirty four to start. Uh, I said, did I say the series bowling average of Shaun Udall? Or was I
0: that where I went with that? I think so. It was. I think it was the yep. first series he played or the first away series he played against India in mm. two thousand and five, something like that.
1: Yeah, no, it was. He'd played in Pakistan previously. A right. Couple of tests got but Salmon butt out um, a couple of times. Yeah and then in this India series he played one test played the last test of the series took uh, took wickets and ended up with a series bowling average of 13.4 mm. so that's where we started and and then I talked about the selman butt dismissal because it was funny because selman butt was a left-hander Sean Udall was an off-spinner and Salman Butt got an outside edge into the forehead of Marcus Triscothic at first slip, which bounced up and was caught by uh, Geraint Jones. Geraint Jones? Geraint Jones, the wicketkeeper. I use both names. You can pronounce it however you want. So that's where we start, and John Trevelyan was saying we were very near there in terms of the stories that I had told. So our Nerd Pledge bounces from the scone of Marcus Triscothic back to the year 2000, Um, the bouncing off the head catch was 2003. But if we rewind to the previous time that England toured Pakistan in 2000, in the third test of that series, after a couple of draws, that's the Karachi in the dark test match when Mm. Graham Thorpe and Nasser Hussain finish off the run chase without being able to see the ball at the very end of that match. But in the first innings, in which England used five bowlers, Nasser Hussein, captaining the side, had a moment of either madness or inspiration. Yes. And threw the ball to Marcus Truscothic. And this was you know i i hadn't I wasn't too familiar with this part of this match, and so looking at the scorecard, I thought, well, okay, they bowled one hundred and sixty overs or something, so it must have been late in the in proceedings to give others a rest it wasn't He bowled the fifteenth over of the of the test, yeah, yeah Marcus Triscothic. he came on and and so I found some footage of it as well, and he bowled some decent looking seamers. he had got some outswing going, it was looking okay, and then. He gets the opening batsman, Imran Nazir, caught by Ashley Giles for 20. So that was one of 10 times that Triscothic got to bowl in test match cricket. He only once sent down more than the 14 overs that he bowled in that innings against Pakistan, but he never took another wicket. Thus, he finished up with a bowling average of one hundred and fifty-five, John said that had he been more generous, his pledge would have been one pound fifty-five, not one pound thirty-four. So that's the one fifty-five. And Marcus Triscothic's career economy rate was 3.00. Lovely. John said it would all have been wrapped up in an even three pounds. How does it relate to one pound thirty-four? Because on that day, Marcus Triscothic bowled fourteen overs and took one for thirty-four. Got to love it when they come together beautifully
0: like that. Thank you, John Trevelyan. Next up, Jeff, uh, was Peter Brown. Now, mm-hmm. I went through the life and times of Amjad Khan on the weekly mm-hmm. show and surprise, surprise, that wasn't correct.
1: <laughs> I had a feeling that one might not be it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure where we were going with Peter. And, I, you know, I, I mocked. Peter I castigated him because his his clue his his uh, sentence that arrived with the number was I feel like you're going to get this one and I said well that's pretty bloody broad that just makes us it just gives us performance anxiety but Peter <laughs> qualified to say that I feel like is actually a clue uh, think of beery advertising slogans of yore uh, so we did we did, we
0: did. And it took us a while, going back to our earlier discussion about the Brassie line, as a rule, you know the way the advertising markets work in Australia or certainly when we were growing up and informed and influenced by these types of things. It's unlikely that we would have known about the I Feel Like a Twoies campaign, but it was definitely a big thing. There'll be people listening who are from a north of a Brassie line who will be all over this and I'm sure can sing the jingle. But I mm. Feel Like a Tui's" was a big thing In the 80s and the 90s So I very quickly realised That the 122 must relate to Peter Tui Who the 122 will become relevant later and I'll explain why. But it's a great yarn. It's a cracking tale and I didn't know much about it, it must be said. So to quickly skip through uh, the different uh, points that get us to the the relevant story, Peter Toohey was one of the players that was called up when World Series cricket happened. So he was playing for the establishment team when the established stars, if you like, went and played for Packer. So he gets his opportunity against India in the Test Series in 1977-78 and goes really well. Uh, He's capped 288, he makes twin 50s on debut at the Gab makes more than 400 runs in that series, makes five half-centuries. They win the series. It's a real triumph uh, for the kind of replacements team, if you like.
1: And that's the... Series that we were talking about the other week in Relation to the Indian spin quartet Who were all playing at Various times in that series. Yes,
0: that's Exactly right. So on the back of that he was selected for Australia's winter tour uh, of uh, The West Indies in, well I guess it was the End of, of 77, 78 Into 1978 and he Averaged 59 on on, on that Tour as well, which is no mean feet away From home against the West Indies. Now, yes It was a depleted West Indies side at different Points through the series, but they started off with Roberts, Garner and Croft in the team Indeed, Robert smashed Tui in the face uh, in the first test match, which meant that he had to retire absent hurt um, from the second innings. But um, then they had a brawl with the WICB, and it meant they couldn't play the the last couple of test matches of the series. So suddenly it was a a far more balanced affair, where all of the World Series cricketers were, were out of calculation. So then you get to the final test in Jamaica, and this must be what... Uh, Peter Brown is referring to. Because it's, it's where Peter Toohey makes his one test entry, 122 there at Sabina Park. He backs it up with 97 in the second innings, by the way, Jeff. And of course, we've talked at great length in the past about what twin tons mean in Jamaica, specifically at the Kingston Cricket Club, which is um, uh, to the uh, square of the wicket there at Sabina Park, where every player in, in test match history that's made twin tons has a bat on the wall commemorating their achievement, so he was three runs away from that happening for him unfortunately he was stumped from the bowling of a left arm orthodox spinner named Rafik Jamadin, who I must admit I've I've, uh, I've never seen before but he did play 12 test matches in the late 70s and early 80s great name anyway so Peter wrote about this years later and I just thought he was going to write about his you know one and only century in, in test cricket the 122 that Peter Brown's referring to and the 122 he made that day at Jamaica but it wasn't about that really at all. So he, he explains that he made 122. But the real story is that Australia make 3 The Windies reply with 300-odd, recovering from 63 for 5. Then Australia bet really well in the second innings and set them 367 on the final day. They don't really go mm. for the runs after losing five wickets relatively early for the second time in the match. And then they fight back. And it's game on. Not so much for, for the win, but the Windies are looking like they might... You know, it, it get to safe harbour. They might split the difference, and then in the last hour, the game takes a dramatic turn. So the eighth wicket falls, and in quick succession, the ninth falls as well. And that was a batter by the name of Van Holder, who was given out caught behind off the glove. So the Australians are thinking, no dramas. We've got six overs to finish the job. How good's this? We're going to get a look at their number eleven. Not so. The Australian players have been warned when they arrived in Jamaica that it was a particularly volatile time, and that. They should be very careful about the way they conduct themselves on the cricket field because it was fierce in their Sabina Park. And that's exactly what happened. Holder cracks it as he's walking off, implying that he didn't hit it. And the crowd riot. They start throwing missiles onto the ground. Some of them nearly reaching the players who are all huddled in the middle near the pitch. And this goes on for 40 minutes until the riot police arrive um, with their rubber bullets and the tear gas and the works. And that means that By definition, they've lost their last six overs. They've lost the chance to bowl at the West Indies number 11. In turn, the match is drawn and that's it. It's the end of the series. They don't get a chance to... To, mm. to square the ledger, and that's the test match where Tui had made his 122. He goes on to play the following summer in 78 79 and makes it an unbeaten 81 at the Wacker, but he's dropped by the end of the series. He adds two further caps after the teams are reunited the following summer one against England and one against West Indies in that weird summer where all three teams were in situ playing uh, cricket against each other, which you mm. don't see well, with the exception of 1912. Uh, but when it was done for him, he was really done and and never made it back. So he played 15 test matches all up for 893 runs at an average of 32. Uh, But that magnificent week at Jamaica where he made 122 and 97, a match that ended in most controversial circumstances.
1: Wow. As far as memorable ends to a test match go, it's it's not much more than getting the riot cops in. Yeah, The twin tons thing, it reminds me of, I was was thinking of this earlier, um, that uh, looking at, at who's made Twin hundreds in Test cricket and being reminded again that it's never been done in women's Test matches. You know, far fewer matches mm. played, and, and just how bloody annoying it still is that you know that Elise Perry was on seventy six not out in the second innings yes. of Thornton and, and just dawdling, just patting singles around, and then they shook hands and walked off for the draw. Like you, you could have been the first player to get twin to tons in a Test match. Like yeah, yeah, it's a shit draw, fine, but you could have got something out of it. Nah, nah. Take the extra half hours rest. Just yeah, I will. I will never fully digest that day for it, Taunton. It, it wasn't. A,
0: it wasn't a great four days of our life. Let's be honest. It wasn't. wasn't a, wasn't the most. Uh, well,
1: let's hope that,
0: that the next test match or the next three that are played, the preconditions are there for them to be exciting contests. Because that wasn't, and it was a shit pitch, and and uh, and it didn't do anyone any favours.
1: Yeah, shit pitch, shit tactics, shit approach. Yep, hopefully. Hopefully, the changing the structure of the series helps as well. Uh, what have we got next? We've got the 146 We do, Al Saunders. We
0: do. So, this was the one. Had you said to me a week ago, well, we're going to do some revisits, I would have said that the one I was most certain of last week was, uh, was this being correct. I thought the mm-hmm. 146 must be Viv Richards at the Wacker in 1988. How could it not be? But I was wrong. Al Saunders wrote us to say that he was very excited to hear it come up in Story Time. In time and place, Adam was almost bang on But once you work out the 146 I had in mind You'll laugh at the stylistic contrast And,
1: uh, and Jeff, uh, you worked it out Yes, well, in time and place, almost bang on means that Viv Richards smashed 146 at about a runner ball in Perth at the Wacker, and less than a year later, on the same ground, Mark Greatbatch from New Zealand also made 146. <laughs> now, this is Mark Greatbatch, who's you know the, the the large lad who was known for being the sort of pinch hitting opener at the um, at the World Cup in '92, but in this case, he played the opposite sort of innings, the contrast in styles that Al was talking about. Uh, so not just because it came from a less celebrated player than Viv Richards, but Viv was going at a runner ball and made 146 in three and a quarter hours. Mark Greatbatch was going at a strike rate of 30 and took just under 11 hours. Uh, and this was because New Zealand were following on 290 runs behind after uh, David, AKA a Abun made a double hundred. So, Great batch in the second innings, he's facing a pace attack of Alderman, Lawson, Rackerman and Merv Hughes, not bad, and faces 485 balls over two days of the match to draw it. Bats out the draw, they got through to stumps at seven wickets down and 32 runs in front by the time it was called off and uh, the notable part of the match was that Uh, As a larger gentleman, he forgot his trousers on day five, (laughs) having batted all of day four, and had to borrow a pair um, from John Bracewell that did not fit him very well and said he was (laughs) very much preoccupied through much of day five with trying to bat without splitting his strides, but still managed to bat through the day. So great batch, the long form 146, as opposed to the Viv 146, both at the wacker.
0: Very good, thank you Al Saunders You know what Jeff, we finished our revisits It was a big segment today, it was bulky but we've We've got there, which means we can move quickly along to confirmations, answers that we did get correct. We've got a decent slab of these yeah. as well. Let's begin with the 228 that Harry Wojciechowski uh, sent through that we eventually, well, Jeff actually said that it was the uh, the catch taken by uh, Ravinda Djeleja uh, off near Wagnat Christchurch a few years ago. Bang on. Loved your chat about it, including the comms clip as well, which we dropped in. Uh, brought back some great memories, remembering the crowd's roars. It was... Harry's first time seeing cricket outside England. An awesome experience. And this was one of the standout moments from a whirlwind few days. Top work from you both. And kudos to Jeff for the surname pronunciation too. Hopefully I've done justice to
1: it as well, Uh, Harry. uh, I'm not going to try it again. No worries, Harry. We do our best on that front at the final word. Alistair Townsend's 286. Uh, It was indeed the 2 for 86 that Richard Saggers took on his England debut uh, in which he became a player who took a wicket with the first ball that he'd bowled in his home country. There you go. How's uh, that for a stat? <laughs> uh, Alistair said he's been running a bit behind this week, only just heard the episode, but being named Siva Super Performer of the Week is definitely the highlight of my year. Alistair does some work with Brazil Cricket and tells us he was down in Poços last weekend and the guys there all send their best. So uh, hello to all our friends in Brazil. Alistair's off to Rio tomorrow to play some cricket down there. And he told me later that he made, I think
0: he made two, so um, that's fine. At least he got the chance to take the field. Uh, and there was some great videos that the Brazilian team posted last week, the women's team, that is, of, of taking the field for the first time in presumably a long time uh, after the terrible COVID situation there at the start of this year. So great to see Roberta and the team back on the park. 379 was the number we also got correct from Lakshmi Govinda Sami. Uh, We uh, said that it was Adam Gilchrist's test catches, but also um, related to where he grew up in uh, the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales. Uh, Lakshmi says, Jeff has a clear insight into my psyche. It was never going to be a Queenslander for someone from the New South Wales border. I am from Moorwillamba and the Lismore Connection for Adam Gilchrist was heavily leaned on in that region. Sam Ashworth also picked up on this, Jeff, as a little side note. So 379 catches for Adam Gilchrist. Adam Gilchrist's cap number is 381. Now, if you've been listening to the show recently, you'll know that Sam has a certain spidey sense for this when it comes to feats on the field and how it marries up um, with test cap numbers. He thinks it's quite remarkable given how high the number is how close Gilchrist came uh, with his test catch tally. So he went and checked who else comes close to that. MS Dhoni took 251 catches from cap 256. Rahul Dravid uh, 207 catches with cap 210. And Tatenda Taibu who took 57 catches from cap 52. And last but not least Clyde Walcott who took 53 catches and wore cap 58 we didn't actually wear cap 58 because it's well before the time that we recognize these things but retrospectively we know that Clyde Walcott was the 58th <laughs> cricketer to play test cricket for uh, the West Indies so thank you Sam for the add-on and thank you Lakshmi for your excellent number and fun clues along the way
1: Cameron Allen's 170 was indeed, speaking of cap numbers, the women's test cap of Jess Jonathan, who made 99 on debut, uh, a, a number that we couldn't believe took us as long as it did to solve. Cam said, I was also surprised it took so long, considering how often you've mentioned that innings." <laughs> Dare I say, Jess Jonathan is Rockhampton's favourite daughter... Yes. ..where I was born. So up into rocky territory for Cameron. Matt May said his 506 was indeed the run chase... That South Australia... Put on in the Sheffield Shield When Greg Blewett had a good day If I recall correctly uh, Obviously correct, says Matt
0: Yes, the, uh, the 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 best Fourth innings run chase in Shield history Where Blewett made 98 of those uh, 540 Jim Carnegie uh, We eventually said Stuart Law Jim says that Jeff was correct with his nearly A third category, now this is where Jim has said that 540 Or .54 or whatever it is, related to Three parts of Law's career, now he would have had a test average of 54 had he been dismissed, but he wasn't, so that didn't, didn't quite work. However, the intent for that stat was that his best first-class bowling was 5 for 39. He goes on to say that perhaps Rob Belinda too has some footage where we can retrospectively have him called for overstepping and take it to 5 for 40 and go with the various 54s. <laughs> I like yes. that. I like that an awful lot. As for why Stuart Law, Jim explains that for 10 years some mates and him have played indoor cricket under the name Stuart Law and Order. (laughs) For our third Guernsey change, we tweeted the great man for inspiration and he came back with a... Needs more (laughs) (laughs) moron. I'd love to hear a Jeff tangent on other cricketers slash pop culture combinations for social sports teams. He is the master of good, bad puns, especially taking it too far, which no one enjoys more than me. Well, Jeff, I'm going to steal your thunder here and I'm going to tell you a story. When I was... Fifteen, I took a job working as a indoor cricket umpire at the Dandenong mm-hmm. Indoor Cricket Centre. It was called Action Indoor mm-hmm. Sports Dandenong, to be precise. Mm-hmm. And umpiring first-grade men's indoor cricket on a Wednesday night was mm-hmm. rugged. It was willing. <laughs> it might be a combination of uh, the, the part of Melbourne where it was, where I grew up, which is pretty rough and tumble, or the types of characters who were who were drawn towards indoor cricket. Yep. Well, Division 1 were ruled by a team called Booney. You can probably work out why they were called mm-hmm. Booney. And one of their competitors and look this was this was rough as guts. Like I had you know proper adults threatening to beat me up and you know the usual sort of shit you'd mm-hmm. imagine to intimidate the umpire. But what I'll never forget in much the same way you had your earworm earlier with Ice to meet you uh, uh, for mm-hmm. me it was that one of the competitors in the first division for Booney was a team that had a name of Six u l d v eight s six u l d v8 s mm-hmm. so you kind of read it and think six old v8s or something like that which you know mm-hmm. but these geniuses mm-hmm. wanted their name to be sexual deviates, but they were so <laughs> fucking thick that they didn't realize that it's deviant not deviate <laughs> Talk about being – I mean, mean, first of all, what a disgraceful sort of way to frame up your team name anyway. Again, (laughs) this probably speaks to the sorts of people that were signing up to play for a team like that anyway. But (laughs) seriously, you couldn't – I mean, I I would not make that up.
1: Oh, Jesus.
0: But but for no one to have informed them – I don't know. You're not a sexual deviant. You're a sexual deviant.
1: Yeah, but it um, it was always turned into deviant. You know, that that was a sort of outer suburban Australian thing of the time, I remember. You know, it used, to, it used to be a bit of a relatively common insult you might use in the 90s, I reckon. Yeah, or you deviate. You deviate. Don't give, don't give them a get out of jail. Don't give them a
0: get out of jail card here, Jeff. I'm tipping they did some pretty bad shit.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Say, I'm not saying it was a good name. <laughs> so I could it just. It seemed like that was the way to do things at the time. Well, I would come up with a better class of cricket pun if I had the opportunity. But um, yeah, it's on the spot a bit. I don't think you can actually go past what was actually a nickname because the it is frankly genius that that. Uh, Funky Cole Medina became Funky Colin Miller. Like that mm. is hilarious. Mm. Yes, it's, that's really good work. And if that were a team name, it'd be great. But it's already somebody's nickname. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I, I'm off the top of my head. I'm not sure I've got much. I'm thinking like Cameron Cuffy, the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> or, <laughs> <laughs> like, leg-breaking bad or something. <laughs> I'm trying to think of t- t- TV shows, but... The you, the place you, for, I'm
0: just thinking the Blake, the place for Essex, Matthew Quinn, medicine woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, doc, there's got to be something with Dr. Georgia Redmayne as well. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you were playing with Muhammad Azaruddin, a sports betting enthusiast, you might be playing Game Was Thrown. <laughs> <laughs> um Oh. uh if ah uh, if you're um you know daryl tuffy style if you're a, if you're a fast bowler who has a complete meltdown on the field sure no ball um you said you did no prep uh, <laughs> No, <laughs> i'm just i' just trying to maybe if you're this is particularly for an all all women's team uh, all the singles ladies. <laughs> I don't know, that's
0: all I get. Oh <laughs> Well, you're better at this than I am, but I'm happy with my contribution. Let's move on from it. <laughs> Thank you, Jim Kinegi. That was fun.
1: Uh, yes, and Vivek Arcot's $2.28. It was indeed the score of two twenty eight not out. The Verenda Sayweg was on overnight before going on to a triple century. Vivek says, when I pledged, I didn't know that the shit list even existed. Well, look, the shit list has currently one person on it, uh, and that's because... Nobody's allowed to be mean to Glenn Maxwell. Don't be mean to Glenn Maxwell. It's like kicking a puppy. Come on, just be nice. Um, So, you know, Vivek says that the story of Ganguly passing the score, the top score for an Indian left-hander, was one that interested him. But the 2.28 for Sawag overnight stuck with me because I'd never seen an Indian batsman dominate the way Sawag did to score that many runs on the first day out of 3.56 was astonishing. Not scoring the fastest triple in terms of minutes is not his fault, uh, given the the overrates and so on at the time, (laughs) uh, which is true. They faced a lot more deliveries back in the day. And Vivek also says, a note to me, he says, Mansur Ali khan Pataudi is a very beautiful man. I'm sure he could do much better than you or me. (laughs) He probably could. I don't remember the reference. We could could still make the the offer. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask, don't get, Vivek. Don't ask, don't get. And last up. Last up uh, for our confirmations.
0: Alex Brown, 300. We said Richard Hadley's car. Of course we did because Richard Hadley's car was going to be sold off for somewhere between thirty dollars to $35,000 or at least that was the amount of money that Hadley was going to have to put in the pot after he won the vehicle uh, for being the best player of the international summer of 85-86. Alex, the whole thing caused a shitstorm in New Zealand at the time with the classic Kiwi clobbering machine, as we called it, out in force. Hadley's a shit bloke. does he think he's better than us clue well he really was etc he anything. was
1: he was so much better than them he was way better than everybody else the only reason they won anything was because he was there give him his car shut up he bowled really well give him his car he batted well too he fielded pretty well leave him alone and, let him drive to the shops and, and, the, uh,
0: and, and the fact that you had to tell Alex that the beige brigade uh, have subsequently bought the Alfa Romeo uh, was news to him and genius and he's off to work out his next number at some point I will also make contact with the beige brigade so that's a good prompt to do that during the week i i want to see the hadley alfa romeo and the 91 batmobile in the same place at some point when covid allows for these sorts of things
1: oh absolutely maybe a race yes. maybe uh yeah <laughs> on the mcg <laughs> getting to maybe james sherry can compare um we'll have it can he ever we'll, we'll, we'll have it we'll get them to, when they when they lay the track in maybe when they lay the track in at the gabba for the olympics <laughs> <laughs> when, they, when they pop the 100 metres, when they do the 400 metres track in the Gabba, we'll have Cathy Freeman do a lap, you know, and then we'll get the Batmobile and the Alfa Romeo out and, and have them tool around while James Sherry compares. Perfect, what do you think? Perfect. We can do it over 94 metres to,
0: to go. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty niche, but those who know it know what I'm talking about. Uh, a bannerman to finish, Jeff Terry Hogan, he's an ideas man and I love him for it. Um, he's been enjoying all the Bannerman stories and he says that when he first heard us talking about Bannerman years ago, it made him realise that the final word is something out of the ordinary. Well, thank you, Terry. I'm glad that us talking about Charles Bannerman a lot <laughs> was the uh, was the catalyst for you realising that we're kind of odd. Anyway, Terry's been thinking that bowlers are kind of missing out on the fun though, which he's, he's right in saying that. He's absolutely spot on. Mm-hmm. So he's putting forward, as a result, a performance of Hugh Bromley Davenport, in the first test against South Africa at Port Elizabeth Mm -hmm. in 1896. Chasing 319, South Africa were bundled out for 30, with HBD taking 1 for 23. So he conceded 76.6 of the team total. I'm not sure if that's a record, but it's got to be close. I also wanted to add the Bill Ponsford chat from the other week. Uh, he he made centuries in his first two test matches as well as his last two, and he'll be surprised if anyone else has ever achieved that. Well, I'm sure that's correct. But yes, on that front, can anyone beat Hugh Bromley Davenport for conceding a higher percentage of runs in a completed innings? That's a bloody good question. I mean,
1: I suppose... That's not really getting bowlers in on the fun, though, because no. nobody wants that. No, no one wants to be the... <laughs>
0: I'm just trying to think. Like, think if you if you if you space this out, if a team's all out for a hundred, you know, mm. yeah, he's right. No one's going for seventy for seventy of those, are they? Realistically,
1: yeah, it's got to be a low score. But you know, I mean, it could be, it could be a kind of situation where you know maybe a couple of opening quicks are particularly parsimonious, and then you know a spinner gets belt it around a bit, but picks up wickets at the same time and so yeah. let it roll. But but it'd be pretty hard to concede 70 out of 100, yeah.
0: Okay, well, thank you, Terry, for bringing it to our attention. Can you beat HBD?
1: Let us know uh, in the usual way through the week. <laughs> and <Jeff? laughs> And I love how everyone pays tribute to Hugh Bromley Davenport on your birthday. Isn't it great how they all get on your <laughs> Facebook wall and go, Hugh Bromley Davenport, Hugh Bromley Davenport, Hugh Bromley Davenport. It's just a nice
0: trick. You can be sure on your next birthday that's what I'll be saying to you. <laughs> I, I think that's the end of the show, Jeff. Uh, we've done a lot yeah. here. Uh, we, we've, we we've, we've dealt with a lot of numbers and we've uh, we- we revisited plenty as well but um, after an hour and 40 odd minutes it's time for us to uh, say goodbye for another weekend.
1: We've done the Lord's work, uh, assuming that the Lord does indeed work in mysterious ways, uh, or is the one who owned the cricket ground in St John's Wood. It's the final word. It's story time. Thanks, thanks to Seabus. Hey, Seabus, we thanked you off the top, but we'll thank you one more time. Love you, love you. Can I? We can think I suggest?
0: Can I suggest on the way out we didn't do a Seabus Super Performer of the weekend? Let's make mm. it Terry Hogan for giving okay. us a new way to uh, think about. Um, the Bannerman. It's only right Let's that, make, yep. that we sign yep. off yep. With, with Terry as our CBUS Super Performer of the Weekend one last time.
1: Yeah. Or we could duly award it. We could also give it to Peter Little of CBUS, who's been a Super Performer of a couple of years. That's um, true. So maybe a week's not enough. Maybe the Super <laughs> Performer of the last two years is, is Peter Little. So thanks... Thanks to them again and the Lord's Taverners uh, and thanks especially to everybody on Patreon because, by God, this show exists now and it would not if you were not doing the thing that you do because it takes literally days to do this research and it is fun and we enjoy it, but there is no way we could be doing it if you weren't helping support the show. So, if you want to get involved with that, we would love to have you uh, and it would definitely help us keep doing what we're doing and uh, hopefully branch out to do more exciting and ambitious things as well into the future involving other mediums, travel, trips, all kinds of things uh, that that may be possible in the blue sky thinking. Thanks to uh, Bad Producer Productions. They run the podcast network on which this show exists. Lots of other shows on there as well if you want to find them. Uh, the editor is Dave Collins who does the audio each week and thanks to Adam Collins, no relation, for getting in the numbers minds with me this week and digging up a rich seam of numerology. This was the final word, story time. We'll be back with our regular weekly show this coming Wednesday. We'll Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant I had to go about